Welcome to another Christian Education National Podcast. Another episode where we bring you the audio of a presentation that has and hopefully will continue to encourage Christian educators. May it be an encouragement to you and your work for His Kingdom. Good to be with you. Uh, really encouraging time. It's good to be in Adelaide. I do uh, run every city I go to, and in Brisbane a few months ago, I got lost four days in a row running in Brisbane. And the first day, I couldn't remember the name of the hotel, couldn't remember the street or the suburb, but I figured how many smelly, bearded uh, old men could be wandering around the streets of Brisbane lost? Well, you'd be surprised, but um, <laughs> it's great to be here. It's great to run along the river. And uh, great to hear what Rod had to say. We did. Uh, 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings the last two years as our major teaching series, you'd be amazed when you go to the Old Testament, you think, wow, what are we getting from this? The amount of pastoral issues it raised and resolved over the course of a couple of years was astonishing and the way it encouraged God's people. So I encourage you to go to those wondrous texts in the Old Testament. Well, the title of my talk, as you heard, uh, is I switched the words around, which betrays uh, both my, my two great uh, assets, creativity and laziness. Um, creativity, because I turned a noun into a verb, switched the words around and got practice reimagining. Very creative, me. But also lazy, because I did end up getting a couple of emails from Chris Parker saying, McAlpine, we need that title, like, two weeks ago. And I went, oh, right, yeah, practice reimagining. Ta-da! See what I did there? And they were, But all jokes aside, I'm convinced it's central to what we're doing because Western Christianity is having its cultural moment, is it not? There has never been so much hostility towards the gospel from the public square as it seems in recent years, but never so much openness. Someone said that to me uh, the other week uh, in Scotland. He's just moved to uh, Perth here from Dundee. Moved to Perth, sorry, Sydney, rather than um, Perth. Uh, This is Adelaide, too. No wonder I get lost running. (laughs) Never so much hostility, never so much openness. And we saw the hostility, didn't we, in the lead-up to this year's federal election. Hard secularists gunning for alternate ethical communities, like Christian schools, primarily. Why was that? Well, we are what I would call what others call mediating institutions. We curate an alternate vision of life. We have a different goal, a different telos to what the culture is promulgating from the top down, especially in the holy grail areas of uh, sexuality. And as you notice, there was a lot of hostility and a lot of disinformation. It was an astonishing lead up to a federal election where the key question in this most secular age was which of the opposition leader or the prime minister thinks who's, who, who's going to hell? Turns out it was the opposition leader on the election night, but that's what it felt like. It was, how did that question get to be a question in secular Australia? Lots of hostility and lots of disinformation. But lots of openness openness to the gospel message of Jesus. University Christian unions in Australia report that even though there has been a level of hostility on campus, mirroring perhaps what's going on in the US, the level of interest in the gospel is something that they have not seen in years from university students. Here we are in a world of infinite choice and opportunity, yet the lack of meaning and purpose among many, especially the young, 
seems painfully obvious. People are open. Depression and anxiety rates cannot be soaring through lack of choice and opportunity, can they? Not here in the land of opportunity. Not now in the era of choice. It has to be a lack of meaning, a lack of purpose. Young people especially asking, is this it? Is the goal of choice just choice? Is the point of opportunity just opportunity? What choice? What opportunity? They're like rabbits in the headlights when it comes to actually choosing something with a telos, a goal, outside of choice itself. The cultural story that we've been curating is creaking. It is not delivering. And in this cultural moment, we have the chance to offer a better story. We have the chance to craft what Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor called a social imaginary. In fact, in mediating institutions, we have the chance to form this little micro-social imaginary. And a social imaginary is simply the society's way, collectively, of comprehending the world around it, narrating the story that makes sense of it, and then reinforcing that by continually narrating it. The thing is, social imaginaries don't just spring out from thin air. They are built over time through embedded practices, long-term decisions that leach down into subterranean thought and action, shaping what could be and then finally what must be true. That's how social imaginaries work. And Christian schools, as mediating institutions in our culture, are supremely placed to offer an alternate social imaginary, a mini sort of a social imaginary, a different story to this very hostile yet very open culture. You will have people coming to you who are both of those things at the same time, students, families. But it's not just a different story it is, as the UK psychiatrist and evangelical Christian Glyn Harrison calls our story, a better story. A better story. How? By practicing reimagining. We can enact practices that embed an alternate social imaginary to the withering vision of life on offer in our culture. We could make our story, the gospel story, imaginable to people who come to texts like Deuteronomy, come to texts like Two Kings and say, that cannot be possible in this modern time. That's what we have the chance to do over the coming decades. And I want us, in that context, to hold our nerve in the face of the hostility, to hold to that story in the face of the pushback. So there are really just two acts of my talk today. Act one, I want to look at the cultural story and I want to look at the secular social imaginary and understand where is the hostility towards our story coming from. And then in act two, I want to look at a better story and reimagine the gospel social imaginary and take advantage of the openness that we have before us as people come to us and say, this thing in the culture isn't working. What can we do? But first, this one. 
Here's a story. When fire swept through the Notre Dame Cathedral earlier this year, there was an apocalypse. You know what I mean by that? There was a great reveal. (laughs) Parisians lined the streets to cry and to pray. (laughs) To pray, interesting, publicly. There in the most self-consciously secular city, in the most secular Western nation, people gathered publicly and cast their eyes heavenward. Something apocalyptic happened. Transcendence leaked in. Something leached through the hermetically sealed dome of a modern French culture that is renowned for knowing everything about earthly pleasure but clueless about heavenly joy. And for a brief moment, the fire melted a hole, punched a hole in the secular fabric that has been patched together over the past three centuries. The memory of a long extinguished story was relit by a spark. Notre Dame has moved from millions of worshippers a year and thousands of tourists to millions of tourists and thousands of worshippers. The secular has bitten hard. And the Notre Dame fire exposed, albeit tragically, humanity's stubborn refusal to jettison belief in the transcendent, to chuck out this alternate social imaginary that there's something more, that this is not all there is. Now, don't get me wrong. Belief in the transcendent is far from the easiest option in our most secular modern world. The fire did not reverse centuries of secularism in France. Churches aren't suddenly full. Politicians aren't suddenly praying. But it did prize a chink in secularism's plated armour. It revealed a desire for something more. More meaning, more purpose, more destiny than what cool, detached, unbelief seems able to offer. In his great book, A Secular Age, Charles Taylor unpacks the conditions required for unbelief to flourish, and not only to flourish, but to be seen as the default. And he begins by asking this memorable question. Why was it virtually impossible not to believe in God in, say, 1500 in our Western society, while in 2000, many of us find this not only easy, but even inescapable. Do you get what he's saying? 1500, belief in God in Europe was taken for granted. 2000, 500 years later, unbelief is the default. It's as if unbelief is secularism's factory setting. There's an invisible switch on your back. Turn around, it could be your spine, but it's on your back, and it says secular and religious, and it's automatically set to secular automatically. And in order to flick that switch to religious, so we are told, we have to create all these stories and build up all this detritus around the secular. Myths, dramas, dogma, wonder. And secularism's role is to police this and expose it, to strip those stories away and reveal bare, naked reality, the rocks of rational truth long since covered over by religious story. 
But Taylor pinpoints this. Unbelief is a story too. Unbelief is a story too. It's what he calls a subtraction story. A story about how we need to subtract other stories to reveal reality. It's a story about this process of stripping things away bravely to find the bedrock reality that there is really nothing there other than us. And it's no less a story for that. (laughs) Because we cannot live without story, whether we are religious or secular. And this secular story is just as contested and therefore as contestable as the stories it wishes to replace. And that is the chink in the armour in these secular times. Whether they are belief stories on the one hand or unbelief stories on the other, the culture we swim in, what Taylor calls the social imaginary, all of it depends on creating a story or believing a story. We can all identify the belief story. We're Christians after all, aren't we? But what about the unbelief story? What about the things that make up this so-called subtraction story of how we get to modern times in 2000 where it's not only easy but inescapable to not believe? How does that work? How do you put those things together? I feel like this is the reveal. We're pulling back the curtain and saying, how does this secular machination actually go together? Let me show you an interesting billboard. You might remember the last national census in Australia. Now, there's been a no-religion question on the census for a while, but it was pushed a little harder in 2016. And note what it says. Do you see what it does say? It doesn't say not religious, does it? It doesn't say not religious. It says not religious anymore. Anymore. Not religious is just like a statement hanging out there. But not religious anymore, that's a story, isn't it? In the same way that the beauty and the tyrannical beauty of make America great again is different to make America great. Because make America great again said, you remember that time that America was great? Well, that story, we're going to start running that story again. (laughs) Stories of power. You remember that time, you know, we were religious? Well, you know, a lot's happened and we're, we're not really religious anymore. It's a story. This time, given the option, given the campaign, an extra... 900,000 people ticked no religion than did the last time. It's roughly 12 million have ticked religious, 6 million in total now, no, not religious, no religion. Now, who were those 900,000 people? Now, I'm going to figure that they were not 900,000 Jesus-loving, praise and worship singing Christians from your church. You suddenly look, where's the other, there's 15 people missing from every church, 900,000 across the country. Uh, they, they were not the servant-hearted ministry leaders from your church suddenly going, I'm done. I'm not religious anymore. Take my name off the giving list. <laughs> no. 
No, it wasn't that, was it? It was more like Harold sitting at the kitchen table filling up a census form and he yells out, hey, Madge, Madge, what, what, what religion are we again? Yeah? And normally he'd tick Anglo-Catholic, Calathumpian or whatever. But not anymore. Now, given the option and an option that seems increasingly inescapable in our secular social imaginary, Harold and Madge feel free to tick no religion. Indeed, they are freed by ticking no religion. It's part of the secular salvation story. See, the secular salvation story has a great hymn. It goes like this. You may have heard it before. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Praise, well, praise something, but yeah. You see, the salvation story cuts both ways. And the story that has been curated to the Madges and Harolds, and indeed especially to their grandchildren, who are always steeped in that narrative, is that the decline of religious belief is not only inevitable, it's old, it's clunky, but more importantly, its decline is desirable. Desirable. Why? Because religion in the West has been unkind. It is repressed, it is suppressed, it has run out of emotional and relational steam, it has corralled our freedoms, especially the freedom, deepest freedom of our modern West to self-identify, to truly be our authentic selves, especially people such as Auntie Mabel's son, Colin, who's just proposed to his boyfriend. Christianity, especially Christianity, is now seen as on the wrong side of history in matters of sexuality, happiness, and it's going against the arc of long-term justice in terms of abuse of power, etc. That's the story. Anyone want to sign up to Christianity? <laughs> and the social imaginary of this soft cultural power story, reinterpreted by the cultural storytellers, the media, academia, and the like, is reinforced to us through legal, hard, political power. To the point where, as imagine Harold might have ticked no religion quietly, scarily, a few years ago, they do it proudly and loudly now. Once it felt emotionally like an away game to tick no religion. Right? You know that feeling? Going to an away game? Is there an away game here? It's Adelaide versus Adelaide all the time, isn't it? You go to an away game in a British football game and you keep your head down at the pub. You're not, oh, yeah, 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 at the away game, are you? You just, yeah, thank you, sir. I'll have my beer, drink my beer, and off I go. <laughs> it feels like an away game. Something out of place in the Western social imaginary. No religion feels like a home game. Increasingly, it feels like the right side of history. At least that's the cultural story, never mind the speed bump of the last federal election. Yet, as the Notre Dame fire proved, it's not all one-way traffic. The risk always stands that the social imaginary might sort of tilt back in the other direction. And that's why corporations, government agencies and sporting bodies 
are co-opted to ensure that this tilt does not occur. Charles Taylor calls this age a cross-pressured age. There's a pressure going that way and there's a pressure going that way. What does he mean by it? First, it's an age in which we now believe over against the possibility of unbelief. We believe, or we're a believer, but we could imagine ourselves as an unbeliever, yeah? Sit there and think for a minute. What would I look like as an unbeliever? What could my life look like if I went, you know what, I'm not on Team Jesus anymore, I'm just nothing. We've all got that picture in our head of what it would look like. I actually have an identical twin brother who's an atheist, so I... (laughs) You know, we get together and I go, how come your life looks so great and you're so well off and you're living in Kilabilly and stuff like that? I can see my life as an unbeliever. It looks fantastic. No. (laughs) I'm not bitter, you know. (laughs) When my twin brother and I get together, we have some very interesting conversations. And publicly on Facebook, it looks like we're fighting all the time while we're private messaging each other, saying, hey, let's catch up for dinner, you know. But you can imagine your non-Christian self in a way that a 15th century European could not. It was inconceivable. That's the pressure of being a believer in an age where there is so so much opportunity for unbelief. No billboard is telling you as you go down the road, repent. You know, this is not Nigeria where every second shop is, you know, Praise the Lord, automotive mechanics and things like that. I have a friend who goes to Nigeria every year to teach at university there, and he's a psychiatrist. He's working in the psychiatry department and lecturing there, and the uh, Catholic father who runs the department, they're walking down the hallway, and my friend, good Westerner, that he says, is there anyone in this university who doesn't believe in God? He goes, yeah, there's one, but no one takes him very seriously. See, it's not just about time, it's about location, isn't it? There's a social imaginary out there in vast swathes of the world that look at us and go, why are we taking these guys seriously? It's a cross-pressured age, which also means that unbelief is also precariously poised. We unbelieve over against the dangerous possibility of belief. It's called conversion, people. (laughs) They're both conversion stories. We unbelieve over against the possibility of belief, or could I put it this way, a different type of belief. Because that's the point of what I'm saying. Everyone's a believer in a story. It's just the story we choose to believe in. Unbelievers, per se, don't exist. It takes embedded practices to maintain Christian belief in this culture, but it also takes embedded practices to not believe and to believe something else instead. It's called suppressing the truth with unrighteousness, according to Romans. Last year, my daughter's friends bought her a record player for her 17th birthday. technology, man. She goes, wow. I'm aware of their material, you know. And I remember my parents' radiogram and why did we sell that? Why did we give it away? We should have kept it. Worth a fortune. But my daughter buys Beatles albums. 
solo George Harrison albums from the 70s, solo John Lennon albums, and her last album that she breathlessly came through the door with was, imagine, there you go. I went, oh, I knew him before he was famous. And we know the song, don't we, Imagine? We all know the classic line, the shock of Imagine There's No Heaven, the song line that has launched a thousand angry sermons. You know? but, but leaving that line aside, it's the next line that's the kicker. It's easy if you try. Well, 40 years later, it turns out it's not that easy. <laughs> It's not easy to change a social imaginary. It's not easy to keep suppressing the transcendent. In fact, it turns out you have to try really, really, really hard and throw a lot of money and glitter and advertising money and Hollywood at it before the transcendent even looks like shifting. Constructing a social imaginary loud enough to drown heaven out is back-breaking work. Creating a story hostile enough to shut up heaven takes time and talent. Planting a no-heaven story to replace the transcendent beauty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus requires another gospel. And gospels take time and energy to create and curate. And you need to be on your guard for the secular time-bound story You've got to be careful because if it's going to see off eternity, it's got to really work hard to do it. Social imaginaries just don't grow in trees, you know. They cost a packet to build and ages of time to look after. Yet one simple crack, one slip up, and heaven comes flooding back in again. It's infuriating. (laughs) Some 40 years after John Lennon wrote that, We're still trying really, really hard to imagine, let alone create a product that can stand on its own two secular feet. The results are patchy, to say the least. Never has there been more hostility, but never has there been more openness. That is a a hallelujah moment right there. Which brings us to the second act. That's hostility. What about openness? Now, I'm on the board of Swan Christian Education Association in Perth for my sins. And there is one other one among us. And a few weeks ago, we had an AGM or a young guy in his early 30s, Craig, gave up to explain why he should be elected to the board. He gave this amazing story, growing up in a non-Christian family, coming to school, his two siblings went to Swanview Senior High School, which has a big fence around it and a place, permanent place for the police car, and um, it's a tough gig. But for some reason, his parents sent him to Swan Christian College, and he heard the gospel, and then he saw these teachers that lived different lives, and he was immersed in this mini social imaginary, and he's now just been elected to the board. He's converted at school. Story one. 
Another bloke called Dave with a more impressive beard than I grew up in the same hard scrabble suburb that we lived in for 20 years with his single mum and she sent him to Swan Christian College. He's now, as a non-Christian, he's now a deputy principal at one of the association schools. A mate I run with, not a Christian, no Christian background at all, former student at Swan Christian College, became a Christian there, now as a clinical psych in Perth and an integral member of our church. Both he and his wife have a deep practical interest in Swan Christian Education Association. All three of these men, Dave, Greg and Craig, became Christians from non-Christian families at that college. What's the common denominator apart from the power of the Holy Spirit? (laughs) Caveat, caveat. (laughs) You see, the school didn't simply offer better education better pastoral care, it offered a better story. A better story than the story they were living or had been told was the best or only story. They were told the gospel story and they saw it lived out in action. They heard the gospel, they saw it worked out in a community, they experienced this microcosm, a mini social imaginary, where it looked as real as it sounds. It looked plausible an alternate vision of life that contrasted positively with the vision of the good life that they had been marinated in up until the age of about 14 or 15. Now look at that picture again. It does tell you that vinyl is back, doesn't it? But there's something in that. Why isn't it CDs? This is the age of Spotify. It's much easier to just stream it. Well, I was driving my daughter to a camp where she was a leader yesterday morning, where she was doing the driving, and she bought the first Beatles album. We were discussing why, why the vinyl, why the record player. She bought the first Beatles album, and she put it on that record player, and she said, I felt like it must have felt in 1963 for a young 18-year-old girl to take that first album and put it on a record player and drop that needle and it felt something connected to something in the past. The thrill, the joy, the dare of entering a new story. Yes, it's the fun of owning an actual product. Yes, it's the fun of getting the record sleeve. Remember those days, if you're under 30, just look blankly and nod your head. But there's more to it, isn't there? There's a link to a past, a more solid past. At least that's how it feels, because it's not just baby boomers buying vinyl. It's young people. And speaking with my 50-year-old mates, their kids are buying vinyl, but what are they buying? The Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Pink Floyd, Nick Drake. There's a sense that today's story is missing something solid at the centre. Something beyond relevant. Something that gives me a sense of identity that I don't have to curate for myself. Do you get that? If you're told, go out and be whoever you want to be, that's a lot of pressure to forge your own identity that way. The social imaginary tells you that you can be anything relationally, vocationally, sexually. You can be anywhere, anytime, 
And young people are asking, couldn't I just be something, somewhere, sometime? I'm in this pro-choice time, this land of opportunity, and I have no roadmap. It all falls on me. That's the dilemma. It's like the end of Finding Nemo, where the fish who are in the tank are desperate to get out of the tank. They work themselves out of the tank into plastic bags and they get into the ocean. And the final words of the movie, as they look around stuck in plastic bags bobbing around in the ocean, is, now what? I was hoping that the next Nemo movie would be about that. Now what? So in the time remaining, I offer three big picture strategies for this better story. For you as Christian educators to practice reimagining, to respond to that openness in the face of that hostility and create a new mini social imaginary. To let transcendence leak back in, which is my first point. Let's reimagine transcendence. Let's reimagine transcendence. French Catholic journalist Geoffrey Lejeune held a fascinating conversation in May with fellow Frenchman, you may have heard of atheist bad boy writer Michael Welbeck, in Catholic journal First Things, which I highly recommend. Both men, one Christian and one atheist, were lamenting the church's decision in France to chase relevance in the modern age, and Lejeune made this searing observation. The church tried to conform itself to the world at a moment the world was becoming uglier. The church tried to conform itself to the world at a moment the world was becoming uglier. Lejeune's primary concern was aesthetics. The church had given up its old language, Latin, the old rites, its links with the past in a very nervous search for relevance as the modern world approached in the late 60s. Church attendance in France has collapsed in the last 40 years. Is that causation or correlation? It doesn't matter. Cultural relevance isn't working. And in these ugly times in our secular age, with our ugly politics, our ugly words, our ugly images, our ugly statements on Twitter and memes, why, oh why, asked Lejeune, should the church do earthbound ugly? Why indeed? In these times when schools are under pressure to privatise faith as a trade-off for a cultural tick of approval to be thoroughly earthbound Christian communities, hold your nerve. Hold your nerve. Transcendence works. It's a great story. It's a beautiful story. What is the story? Christian education looks, needs to look more sensible. It needs to get on the right side of secular history. It needs to change with the culture or it will die. At least that's how the story goes. But what if Lejeune is right? What if the tactic should be to resist the earthbound urge of relevant 
What if the tactic should be to showcase transcendence and make sure it is weaved into every part of our narrative again? Oh, I know there's the little task of education to attend to, and it's taxing and tiring. But now is not the time to go light on discipleship of our Christian kids or light on gospel and just give moralistic therapeutic deism to those who are not Christian. Now is the time to double down on gospel resilience and gospel beauty. Now is the time to reveal God becomes flesh, God stepping into our story in Christ. Now is the time to shape our school's social imaginaries deeply and richly with a story that has stood the test of time, will stand the test of time, and is that answer to those kids who are saying, now what? Where would those young men, Greg, Dave and Craig, be today if their school had simply confined itself to earthbound hopes and dreams in a search for relevance? We are to reimagine transcendence. Second strategy, reimagine community. But I would say that get the transcendent stuff right, the community is the fruit of that. In the same article in First Things, Welbeck, Michael Welbeck, wistfully recounts his early experiences of going to a Pentecostal church in France. Didn't know France had that many Pentecostal churches. Here is an atheist, nihilistic, overtly sexualized, married several times, promiscuous novel writer in France, a libertine atheist to the back teeth, Yet he says this almost wistfully. Listen to these words. The memories I have of this are strange, attending Pentecostal church. I almost doubt having lived these moments. The memories I have of this are strange. I almost doubt I have lived these moments. And he goes on. The people danced, sang at the top of their lungs, and sometimes spoke in tongues. I never had the feeling I was witnessing a collective delirium or that I was in the midst of a cult. The sign of peace, reduced in Catholic masses to a brief, irritated and icy shake of the hand, gave way here to interminable warm hugs and kisses, and at the end of the celebration, we would share bountiful meals. Ah, smell that, sweet savour. Christian gospel community. Transcendence transforming a meal into a love feast. France is epitomised by great dining. But I reckon the bread and soup that he got there had a richer flavour than anything he's ever had in his life since in the best Parisian restaurant. The Holy Spirit breaks through the hermetically sealed dome with a touch of heaven. Can you imagine that? Yes, you can, because you're experiencing it as God's people, collectively, in your churches, each week, and a taste of it here this morning. But let me push this further. When transcendence shapes our social imaginary, here's what students see in our schools, among their teaching and staff. Perhaps dancing and singing. I don't know what gets on in your staff room. (laughs) 
perhaps impressive spiritual experiences. But here's what they should see. Transcendent forgiveness of others who have wronged you. And the transcendent ability to humble yourself before a student and say, I was wrong. Staff forgiving each other as God in Christ has forgiven them. That's what transcendence looks like. It actually looks very earthy. True transcendence is a transcendent forgiveness in an ugly, unforgiving world. What else should it look like? Love. Inexplicable love. Staff loving their students with the love that God has given them. Dare I say it, loving their enemies. You all know that student. And here's a few pictures. No, we don't have any pictures. Transcendent love. And it's not just loving the lovely, is it? That's earthly love. Love the lovely. <laughs> love is love. No. Love is love your enemies. That's a story. This is love. We read in 1 John. Okay, what is it? And guess what? It didn't start with us. Not that we loved God. Get to the love bit. <laughs> but that he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. Whoa! You want to add some more transcendence that's particularly earthbound into all of that for your social imaginary you know, crockpot, slow cooker that you're going to steam up over the next four or five years? What about purity in an impure world? What about Humility in a proud world, meekness, in a self-promoting world, gentleness, in a harsh world, beauty, in an ugly world. The refugees from the cultural mess are getting younger and younger. Students come to our schools with all the nihilism of Mikhail Welbeck and none of the insight. And it would be dreadful if when they arrived on our shores, they ask us, what's your story of forgiveness? What's your story of love? What's your story of sexuality? What's your story of service? And all we can do is shrug our shoulders and lamely respond, just the same as your story, I guess. Our schools can offer such a compelling story, such a rich vision of communal life in Christ, that think about this, that even if, you have, if you're a literature teacher here and the, the, the new Mikhail Welbeck started writing essays that just made you feel bad because they're so good, and creative writing pieces that are, you know, you can barely read them, they're so harsh, but they're amazing, that even if the new Mikhail Welbeck emerges from the ranks of your school and goes on to fame and godless pleasure-seeking fortune, you would still want that they would look back wistfully on the years they spent with you and reflect, the memories I have of this are strange, I doubt I have almost lived these moments." 
that there's something so compelling about it that it sticks in there like a burr. It's not easy to get rid of a transcendent social imaginary. You have to try and try and try and try again, and every now and then, a chink in the armour opens up and transcendence comes flooding back in. Never more hostile. Never more open. Reimagined community. Finally, reimagine identity. Identity is a buzzword that keeps on buzzing. I have tinnitus. It buzzes all the time. All of the time. That's why I'm so grumpy. All of the time. <laughs> Identity. Everywhere you go. You can't go any, you can't read anything, you can't look at anything. It's buzzing. Identity is a buzzword that won't go away. It's 50 years this month since a man or man depending on whether he actually said A, walked on the moon, Neil Armstrong, July 1969. Some of us remember it very well. For others, it's just a myth. <laughs> we know who you are. Get him out of the room. Yeah. <laughs> you know the interesting thing about going to the moon? It wasn't the photos of the moon that amazed people. It was the photos of the earth from the moon that amazed people. <laughs> Neil Armstrong uttered the immortal words, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind, with the thought that we were going to keep going out there. And for a brief moment, on the back of JFK's lofty speech all those years before, Western humanity looked up, outward, and collectively her identity, but it was a brief window, and it shut again, and now, Houston, we have a problem. We look down, inward, and individualistically. It's an inner space race, a voyage of discovery to deconstruct ourselves back to our true bedrock identity that must be in there somewhere if I dig hard enough and deep enough. If we can just dig deep enough, we can be the most authentic person we can be. This relentless identity drive to discover the authentic self has fueled the sexual revolution of the last 50 years. Yet the cost is an identity lopped off from community. Miroslav observes that our vision of human flourishing in the West has withered to my personal satisfaction. The sources of satisfaction may vary, sexuality, drugs, power, whatever. But he says, it's not the source, but the goal. He says this of the West, the satisfied self is our best hope in the West today. The satisfied self is our best hope. And our psychology practices would say, how's that working for you? My wife is a clinical psychologist. Say what you like about the sexual revolution, but it's built us a great house in Perth. And, uh, you know, I say that advisedly. 
New York Times columnist David Brooks in a 2017 article entitled When Life Asks for Everything posits the idea that this identity drive is leading us down a blind alley relationally, emotionally and spiritually. And he quotes psychologist Otto Rank who made this remark about marriage. Listen to this remark about marriage. One individual is helping the other to develop and grow without infringing too much on the other's personality. Yeah, that's my house every morning, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to infringe too much on your personality. That doesn't work. It's not working out. And Brooke Riley observes that in our culture today, this is what happens. You should choose the spouse who will help you elicit the best version of yourself. Spouses, spouses coach each other as each seeks to realise his or her most authentic self. Oh, that's what I, I've been doing this wrong for 23 years. Result? In the search for the authentic identity, what do we do? We orbit each other, don't we? Always circling, never landing, lunar satellites, scared to be fully drawn in by the other, lest we lose something of ourselves. That is the most ubiquitous, beguiling, and futile aspect of the secular social imaginary. As I said, my wife is a clinical psychologist. And so many of the questions that she deals with are secular identity searches. A growing cohort of my wife's clients are young women, 20 years of age, from posh schools, with high ATAR results coming to her two or three years later after the graduation service because the message of the graduation service isn't working. They're pulling all the levers and all the handles and something's not right. They were told at their graduation services by some famous face that you can be anything, be authentic, forge your own identity, be true to you, it's up to you. And that is a lot of pressure to put on an 18-year-old woman. Folks, if a famous face gets up and says those at your graduation services, frog march them out of the room or at least have a sniper up the top with a little red button. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Then hold an inquest as to how they got there in the first place because that's the tip of an iceberg. Because here's the deep irony. Do you know when your identity is most secure, and I know it from my own experience, when my identity is most secure, when I relinquish my identity to capital O other, Jesus. When my identity is found in him. You are liberated. The weight is taken off you to perform to others. Do you know when we are the most authentic people? Not through self-actualization, but self-denial. And many schools offer a vision of true identity, authenticity, along a pathway of self-expression and self-fulfillment, as long as there's consent. And we can offer lots of stuff, but most of all, we offer Jesus. We offer Jesus, the truly authentic man. I was saying to someone I was running with yesterday, the idea of Jesus being God is astonishing, but the older I get, the idea that Jesus was a man, a perfect man, who 
who resisted all those temptations. The older I get, the more astonishing that is. Fully human, fully God. We offer Jesus, the one who promises a pathway to true identity through self-denial. There's no mileage in saying, if anyone wants to you know, follow me, they must take up their cross and follow me and deny themselves. Because if you want to gain the world, you've got to give up your life and go, that'll never work. Yet here we are. And those two stories of, of authenticity and identity are on a collision course. They cannot cohabit. One must give way to the other. And clearly, clearly, there are cracks appearing in the secular social imaginary, despite the best efforts of the past 50 years. But don't get me wrong, it's got some energy left in it yet. But hold your nerve. Hold your nerve. And if you're 50 and above in this room, hold your nerve for the sake of the 25-year-olds in this room. Take a hit for them. Your mortgage is paid off, or nearly. <laughs> Just take a hit for those guys. Every other education system in this great country of ours, and it does have a good education system publicly, can offer what we offer. Pastoral care as good as, sometimes better, than your school. Sorry to say it. <laughs> education as good or even better, if results are the issue. Pedagogy as good or better. Only we offer the best person ever, the Lord Jesus. True identity is God. True identity is man. Truly authentic. Imagine. Reimagine. The sweet savour of Jesus. Overwhelming the stench of an ugly, ugly world. Imagine when he did it. Read the wondrous stories in the Gospels. Imagine the rich love of Jesus washing over the media hate. Imagine the deep meaning and purpose of Jesus in a world frozen in the headlights of choice and opportunity. Imagine the power of our settled identity as sons and daughters of God in this secular age in a world full of restless orphans. who God says, come to my family. Imagine Jesus at the centre of Christian education's social imaginary. It's easy if you try. Amen.